Hello, y'all. Friday afternoon. Not Friday. Thursday afternoon. I've been talking with this, my, my guys about Thursday all day today. Waterboy here. Good to be with you guys. I have, of course, one of our regular guests that uh, we, just, we just can't get away from. David Bonson coming on the show. and We're going to talk about one of his uh, recent articles that uh, I think you guys need to read. Uh, but before we get into this conversation, please share the show. Hit share right now. Share the show. Look at our Fight Laugh Feast website. We got a rally in South Dakota coming up April 29th through the May 1st. We'd love to see you guys in South Dakota. Fear God. Love God. Love God. Sing Psalms. Defy Tyrants. There we go. South Dakota. We'll see you there. Um, lastly, make sure you guys join the club and subscribe to our magazine. We got this quarterly magazine coming out. And uh, very excited about it. We, we really want to have kind of a book-like experience, a mini book-like experience with this magazine. So subscribe to our magazine, join the club, and uh, we appreciate the support. So let me uh, bring in uh, Dave Bonson. A lot of you already know Dave Bonson, um, so I'm not going to go through any crazy introduction here. But uh, uh, Dave Bonson, of course, is the founding manager partner of chief investment officer of the Bonson Group. Uh, you're on the board of directors of National Review Institute, which is where this article that I'm going to link to uh, is is located at National Review. Uh, you should be on the board of New St. Andrews College, but he's on King's College board right now. Um, you know, I'll have to we'll have to figure that out. Uh, and the founding trustee of Pacifica Christian High School uh, in Orange County is that a uh, Dave? Is that a ACCS school? It is not, but I would say there's a lot of common ground. Yeah. So is it is it is it lean classical? Uh, yes and no. There, there are there are a lot of, um, shall we say, foundational beliefs that are very similar, but not only from a branding standpoint, mm -hmm. but in certain methodology, I'd say it's a little different. But uh, heavy use of the classics. Uh, we have a lot of kids from classical schools that come into the high school right. and do very, very well there. Right. So a lot of overlap, but uh, not total compatibility. Oh, okay, okay. Well, well, very good. So you recently uh, wrote an article called kind of a, assessing the Trump presidency and it, titled a final assessment of the Trump presidency and a path forward. Now, I, when I read through that article, um, uh, when you sent it to me um, after, after you wrote it, I, uh, you spent the first kind of section really just trying to kind of contextualize the tone of you of what you wanted for the the discussion as a result of the article it um i why was that necessary why did you spend so much time on kind of talking about tone first you know well i wish i did that with more articles and i wish more people would do it but particularly with this subject mm -hmm. I think that there is a significant amount of people talking past each other yeah. and people missing where there may be common ground and more than most subjects that, that foster disagreement, this one generates not just heat, but even sometimes toxicity. And that's gone on and on and on, and it's totally unproductive. Mm -hmm. um, but also on a very personal level, Gabe, I wanted readers, particularly very pro-Trump readers, to understand um, where I was coming from and for me to be as presuppositionally um, 
uh, honest mm -hmm. about the empathy that I had for where they're coming from yeah. um, because I was going to go to a different place. So I tried to divide the article into four um, kind of silos, the contextualization and introduction that you've talked about, mm -hmm. all the things I think that were good about the Trump presidency, all the things that were bad about the Trump presidency, and then uh, finally the path forward. Right. I don't think they were all equal in length, but those are sort of the four divisions of the piece. Now, did you ever like write an assessment like this regarding you know the Bush administration or you know Obama? Did you ever kind of write a you know a 2020 article regarding um, their administrations? I did. I I, di I definitely did one of the Bush administration because I just recently reread it hmm. um, because of one of the categories of criticism. I have a both Bush and Trump. I wanted to kind of see what it was that I had said back in, in 2008, right. going in 2009. Right. Um, on the Obama administration, it, I doubt that I wrote a sort of, here's all the good, here's all the bad, but, and forgive the kind of theological parallel here, because I don't think it's actually a great analogy, but um, I wrote the article that we're here talking about for National Review for people on the right. Yeah, right. I didn't write it for people on the left. Mm -hmm. And so with Obama, um, if I were to write an article about here's the half of his stuff that was good and here's the half of his stuff that was bad, it would have been very disingenuous <laughs> because I could point to one, two or three things he did that I'm glad he did or glad he didn't do. Right. But, you know, I, I certainly would uh, view the, the policy portfolio of Obama's presidency as something in the range of 97% negative. Mm -hmm. So just writing another piece as to all the bad things Obama did to, from the vantage point of a conservative like me, right. I think would have been somewhat redundant, where with Trump there's a lot more nuance. Right, yeah. Um, you know, when I read through your article, one of the things I was, I was thinking about is, okay, what, what are the different categories of Trump supporters that were out there? Besides, you mentioned this at the very beginning, like, all right, I'm not talking to the crazies that supported Trump. I'm not talking to the QA9 or QA9 or whatever crowd. I'm not talking about the crazy crowd, but what I started thinking through, okay, what are the categories or, or buckets I can maybe label some people in, in terms of who supported Trump? Uh, you don't have to agree with me on these labels or not, but I think it's helpful maybe as we discuss things further on this, when, talking about this. Uh, one camp I thought of was like kind of the ardent Trump supporters, right? The MAGA crowd, you know, from the jump, they were supporting them. Uh, the other uh, crowd is, you know, kind of the hold your nose supporters. They just voted with them. They always vote conservative and this is what they do. And they held their nose. And then the other, the last crowd would be kind of, I'd maybe put myself in this crowd is kind of the late adopter crowd. I didn't vote for him in 2016. I couldn't trust him. Uh, his adulteries affected very much how I viewed him. His uh, pro choice in the past pro-life now uh, his unpredictability there. Uh, you know, I, I largely viewed Trump as Bill Clinton 2.0 in a lot of ways, you know, he, um, his, you know, sexual lifestyle. Um, uh, Bill Clinton actually talk, started building the wall in, under his administration. You know, uh, Bill Clinton's kind of um, uh, economics in some way. I mean, they did tax cuts largely because it's a, a conservative uh, House and Senate. But there, I just kind of viewed. I thought there's some good parallels there between Trump and Bill Clinton, and so I couldn't vote for Trump. Anyways, I became a late adopter, and I voted for him this second time around. And all that, so I'd kind of, you know, late adopter crowd like me for various reasons came around eventually. What what bucket are you in, or were you in a bucket? Are you, or did you even vote for Trump? I did not vote for him either time, but I wrote an article. And but again, I'm uh, actually in 2020. I was a voter in California, 
even if my voting status had been in New York, it would have been the same argument. Right. My vote was worthless. Right. And so I did write an article saying that if I were in a purple state or battleground state, that I would have voted for Trump in right. 2020. Mm -hmm. um, but that I was not going to uh, waste a vote um, where, with such severe um, questions of character and, and right. so forth when it was unnecessary even in a lesser of two evils type of context. Right. Uh, I agree primarily with a lot of your buckets, but I, I don't fit in any of those three buckets, right. though. My view would be um, the bucket that basically said he he's uh, a man of very low character, and he stayed a, a man of low character throughout his presidency, <laughs> but he was able to get some really good things done. Mm -hmm. um, he, he was a man of pretty low competence, um, not, not a very efficient president. And that's a big distinction between him and Bill, Bill Clinton is that Bill Clinton had a lot of evil aspirations, but he was really pretty competent at getting things done. And, and I think, I think Trump did a lot of really good things, but I don't think he did very many of them with a whole lot of, uh, shall we say, epistem epistemological self-consciousness. Um, <laughs> Awareness there. Let, let me, uh, actually. Either, either way, though, I think, I think that he, um, that the third bucket that you put yourself in is overwhelmingly the largest bucket, but my argument, or something I think I learned during the Trump uh, administration, is that the path from the second bucket to the third bucket is almost inevitable. It's so contrary to human nature for people to say, I voted for him, but I plugged my nose. Yeah. I really don't like him, but you know, I had to do it. Right. I think that last generally, and I do not say this, I swear, as a, um, a judgment on people's character. I'm saying it as a byproduct of the way we're wired. Yeah. Um, I think that that lasts generally for about five minutes. Because <laughs> then once you have voted for someone and, you, and you've made that argument, you really want them, you start you don't cheering want them, them on. To be a lesser of two evils. Yeah. You want them to be the good guy. You want to get excited, and I think that's that's understandable, and that certainly explains an awful lot of the the kind of irrational uh, rationalizations that right. we saw of some of the things Trump did. Now, you you mentioned uh, just a minute ago that Trump was kind of an inefficient president in getting things accomplished in, in comparison to Bill Clinton. Um, uh, is that that a fair statement I just made? Yeah, I think I think that that would be a pretty nonpartisan comment okay. that um, that he he uh, didn't run his. And again, I say this very candidly and very humbly with a pretty fair amount of inside knowledge. Mm -hmm. This was not a smooth operating White House. Yeah. <laughs> now, now, uh, so from from outside looking in, yeah. uh, it 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 seems like I mean Trump did have everything going against him. I mean, yes. you th you think about it. That Trump had the House and the Senate when he became president, and he couldn't get the the Republicans to do anything. The only thing he well, could get him to do was, uh, you know, the economic uh, uh, package that he was able to get through. It didn't say, he didn't get well, but, anything well, else. But, but to Go be ahead. honest, I want to. I don't know if it's a distinction without a difference. I don't think it is. That wasn't his package. He got them to get through. That was their package that they gave him yep. to sign. Yeah. Yeah, that's fine. Okay, that's yeah. a huge. That's a huge difference. And, and my my point is is that the Republicans were pathetic. They got. They yeah, got, that, well, I think it's an odd argument though when we talk about Trump as this deal maker and go getter and a guy who was not only going to be able to get one Republican to vote for Obamacare repeal, mm -hmm. he also was going to get Mexico to pay for the wall, mm -hmm. 
and 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 I'm supposed to be yeah. mad at John McCain yeah. that that Obamacare didn't get repealed, the fifth version of it, not one of which President Trump ever read, ever knew what was in it. Right. They would write a bill and then he would change his mind on what he wanted and what he agreed with. Yeah. Um, I don't think that I think that the uh, most incredible achievements that he got done were entirely the byproduct of the pathetic Republicans you refer to. And, and I said this in the article, how people could criticize what Mitch McConnell did for this guy is beyond me. Uh, 220 federal judges, three Supreme Court justices, entirely at the masterful administration of Mitch McConnell's leadership in the Senate, holding off Merrick Garland, ramming, ramming through the um, uh, Amy Coney Barrett, yep. all of which yep. required Trump too. Yep. All of which, particularly Kavanaugh, Trump had to stick yeah. to him. So, yep. and, and so I, I commend Trump for all this, but yep. I'm just saying the, the the narrative that a lot of people want, that the Republicans dropped the ball and Trump was out getting stuff done, there was one piece of legislation. I'm, just saying, I'm just saying this. I don't think anybody got anything done. And I, 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 yeah. I think it all reeks to high heaven you know for the democrats the majority in the house the first two years and then they didn't have the majority in the house the second two years whose fault would we say that is uh i mean i guess i guess we could say that that's trump's but that happened under obama too but at least obama when he had the house and, he and got, senate and he got all sorts got of stuff done no but in six years gabe he never got another piece of legislation done stimulus Obamacare, Dodd-Frank, all done in the first two years. Yep, yep. Not one meaningful piece of legislation was ever passed again. And, and that's my point, is why couldn't the Republicans, along with Trump, get their act together and do anything? It's because I ultimately believe the Republicans are a feckless crowd. <laughs> well, but you're, you're good at math. You don't want to get rid of the filibuster. No. Nope. To uh, get things through the Senate, you need 60, yep. and the Republicans had 50 and a half. Yep. Okay? And so at, at 51, 52, right. you don't have a filibuster-proof Senate, and, and, I, and I want it to stay that way. Yep. But um, the overall fecklessness, again, it just depends what category we're talking about. Mm -hmm. There's things that land, that belong in the portfolio um, of the legislative branch, and right. there's things that belong in the silo of executive. Yep. Um, I, I do think it's fair to say, though, that the job of the president is to get Congress to act. It's to get deals done. And we have to decide if what we like is uh, divided government and gridlock, which there's a lot of times I think guys like you and I would like that. Yeah. Or if we want them to go get certain things done, the two things I could say I would like them to get done were judges and taxes, and they right. got those things done. Right. Right now, uh, so let's get, let's get to to some uh, uh, what well, list quickly. You know, oh, kind and of also, the, Gabe. I'm yeah, sorry, just please, real quick. Please. Also, all of those appointments, not just judges. Betsy DeVos, at education secretary. Yeah. Um. There, there was a significant amount. All the HHS stuff. Ben Carson at HUD. Mm -hmm. All of those things required Republican passage as well. And so I right. think that both Trump for That's, his appointments yep. and the Senate for getting them done. I think all of those deserve you know, commendation. And, and one other thing that you mentioned also uh, that you thought he did really well was kind of his de deregulatory efforts. Um, yeah. And it seemed like I remember talking to one of my guys, one of my friends in D.C. Uh, this is before I was for Trump. Uh, I think it was two years in or something. And I was like, man, I don't know about Trump, yada, yada, yada. And he said, you don't understand some of the deregulation that he's doing. You don't get to see all this stuff. And, and I still don't 
I still can't get my head wrapped around it because I just don't see everything. But specifically, what are some of the home runs under the deregulatory efforts that he that he did? It's sad to say that one of the great things that uh, we count as deregulation is just the absence of accelerated re-regulation. So, you know, just stopping the momentum of mm. the regulatory state, I think, was an effective yes. part of what he did. That is a pathetic and, statement, and, and, but you're right. <laughs> yeah. But, no, I think that when it came to him appointing Secretary Mnuchin, who was a very effective operator at Treasury, um, uh, the incredibly egregious and unhelpful and harmful to small and mid-sized banks um, the re- of the regulatory environment of the Obama era – um, was really set back quite a bit. And I wow. think that they did a good job alleviating some of the overreaches of right. the Dodd-Frank-Obama era in financials. Right. But the other example that I think is more pertinent to non-coastal America would be energy deregulation. Yeah. So uh, bringing Rick Perry in to, uh, as energy secretary mm. and um, getting, I believe it was 29 projects that Obama had been holding up or Obama appointees had been holding up approved um, was a really uh, effective issue. Now, of course, the problem when you get things done with the authority in the executive branch on a a regulatory standpoint is you can just as easily get it undone, which is what, of course, we'll we'll now experience. It'll take some time to unwind it, though. This is one of I'd say this is the one of the biggest problems I have with the Trump presidency is actually everything that he got accomplished through the executive pen um, means nothing. Right. Yeah, I I would say that it's one of the the, maybe the second biggest thing in that very point. The first biggest thing being that most Republicans now can't say anything about it. As we're sitting here talking, I believe Biden has now signed 27 executive orders in in, uh, barely 24 hours. And what criticism can Republicans possibly offer as we sat back and condoned the heavy use of an executive order pen with President Trump? All of it needs to stop and we need to ask Congress to start doing its job again. How do we fix that problem? How do we how do we deal with this executive pen problem? And it's, you know, it's kind of it's a pen pendulum, really. You know, every four years or every eight years, we're just getting all these executive orders canceled or or started. And it's it's in effect legislation. And that's right. And, and yet it can't ever really get priced into the social fabric of the country, because unlike what our, our founders um, envisioned constitutionally, uh, it isn't going through the right process. Uh, how a bill becomes a law um, is no longer taught in high school civics classes, yeah, yeah. and it's very clearly no longer taught for those that, that uh, hold federal office. But the that's answer as right. to how we fix it is for the people to demand it to be fixed, and the people don't care. Right. If the if the president signs an executive order that they like, then the people support it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and and Republicans did it with Trump. Right. If they liked right. his executive order, they cheer supported it. it. Yep. And and if Biden's executive orders are liked, then people cheer it on. And and so process is, is being treated as if it's irrelevant. And for a constitutionalist uh, and for a conservative, process is not irrelevant. Right. For those who are for those who are tuning in, make sure you guys ask questions. When David jumps off of this interview, I'll kind of get into the chat area uh, on YouTube. I'll be particular on YouTube and uh, get to some of y'all's questions. Um, I let's get to more of the I guess the bad stuff of the of the Trump era, and then we'll talk about moving forward here in a second. Um, the one I got I, I don't know if I really have any disagreements. I think I think I do, but I don't know yet. Um, uh, you one of the bad things that you 
uh, pointed out about the Trump uh, legacy was uh, his desire to fight. Um, now, you, you also clearly said, I understand why people like that desire uh, and everything, but I, I really believe that um, fighting rightly is a virtue. Um, yeah, I, I got to say, you're my friend. I don't think anybody who read the article would have interpreted what I said that way. That, I don't believe that I'm remotely critical of Trump for wanting to fight. Okay. But I have no limits to my criticism for Trump picking the wrong fights right. for the wrong reasons, okay. handling them in the wrong way okay. that undermine the fights that people like you and I do agree with. Right. And I think that I devoted a few thousand words in the article to trying to articulate that it wasn't that Trump was a fighter. Right. It's that he was not, he was undermining the fight. Right. And right. so someone could say, oh, who cares about his temperament and tone and Twitter? Okay. And I would say, when we're being locked down as a country in the COVID moment, yep. and he's tweeting about how high his ratings are on Fox and yelling right. at Jim Acosta every day in a press conference, <laughs> that's not, oh, wow, he's fighting, he's taking it to yep. the media, he's standing yep. up. Yep. He was undermining our desire for COVID freedom. That's right. No, I, I, and by the way, and by the you. way, costing himself re-election as well. Right, hundred hundred percent. There, I, I look at Trump as like he's like this reckless, you know, he's this wrecking ball, and then sometimes he hits the China shop, you know, it's like, or sometimes he hits the wrong thing, and and that that's caused. I, 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 one of I'd say probably one of the other big problems I have with the Trump administration was how he handled this whole COVID shutdown. He let the narrative get away from him, and then he let Fauci. He gave Fauci the the microphone. Really. You know, you're going to let Fauci run your re-election campaign? Um, if, if Trump would have gotten into the, gotten a handle on the COVID narrative, he would have hands down won the election. Well, there's no question. But the problem was that the uh, ideological agenda was not the driver. It was very personal. Very, I, I believe it was very um, ego-driven yeah. and, and really riddled with wishful thinking as opposed to the leadership. You know, Americans are a really interesting bunch. They, there's just almost no news that is bad enough that um, they will turn on the leader when during the bad news, the leader strikes them as someone in command, someone in control. Right. Uh, and 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 someone showing empathy, uh -huh. and and I think that that uh, Trump really handled it very very poorly. But you said at the beginning um, something I think is really important. I agree with you 100 percent that he came in with such a a huge disadvantage the way he was treated, and and I think yeah. you went on to make the point about not getting all the Republican support, and I and yeah. I kind of pushed back on that. Yeah. But here's the thing that is I, I just want to say, I believe is the most unspoken story about his for his term. The Democrats were ruthless, brutally unfair. The media was ruthless and brutally unfair. And had they not been, I don't believe anyone's being honest about what Trump we actually would have gotten. Uh -huh. Because the Trump you were afraid of coming in, if on day one, Nancy Pelosi tweeted, what an incredible victory. No one could have seen it coming. Yeah. Although we're disappointed, we look forward to working with the president to rebuild our country's infrastructure and do this and that. I don't think there's very much he wouldn't have given them. Yeah. 
And maybe I'm wrong, and I totally respect that some pro-Trump people disagree with me, but I don't really think my theory is very outlandish. The good news was he ended up fighting with the same people that we often fight with, far leftist, progressive, socialist, media. I don't think he did it for the same reasons, though. And so my point was, even if you like the personality, the brawler, you want a fighter, and I freely acknowledge that at this point in time, if we don't have a fusion between a tougher personality and a more effective, um, you know, achievement-oriented candidate, I don't think we can win again on the right. 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 However, right. Trump's fighting undermined his success from a policy standpoint, um, and and that's the point I was trying to make in the article, Gabe. Right. Well, uh, part of me. So let's just finish a little bit on the on the path forward here. Uh, you know, part of me once I was still hoping that Donald Trump before he left office was going to do some sort of Samson move and push everything down and let it all crumble down. <laughs> there's a, there's a real desire there. Uh, and, and so in some sense, like I, I really want things to change drastically. I want Republicans to, to show some backbone. I want the Congress to show some backbone. I want, you know, it, um, what's the path forward? You know, since since Samson didn't happen, what what's the path forward? Well, now we get into the whole subject about how cultural transformation takes place, and yeah. there's a lot of different schools of thought on this. And um, probably a lot of people listening uh, won't agree with me, but I will I will at least humbly and charitably share my view. I do understand the view of let's burn it all down so we can rebuild it. Yes. I've never understood why anyone thinks they're going to call on us to rebuild it, though. Yeah, it right, doesn't, right. you know what I mean? Like yeah. out of oh, the yeah. Trump administration, it doesn't seem like people are really overwhelmed with the competence and efficiency <laughs> and sophistication. Yeah. Like I don't think they're going to call Omarosa and and Mooch and and you know, I, I don't know. But but <laughs> look, it, very seriously. I think the things you describe that have gone astray went astray over multiple generations. And the liberals did the long march through the institutions. Mm -hmm. And I think for us to rebuild these institutions, we have a long march ahead of us. So I am a very um, self-aware gradualist. I think it's going to take an incremental effort. Um, I happen to believe in a kingdom of God that works that way as well. So that doesn't discourage me. Right. But but yeah, I don't I don't think it's going to happen overnight, and and I I do believe that our efforts will be made easier, the more that we're able to call balls and strikes in yeah. the political field, yeah, and and say we like this, we don't like this, work with with who we have to work with to get things done. We're not going to get all perfect candidates, mm-hmm. but um, I, I worry that part of our our you know credibility is damaged a little bit, and we got to rebuild that. Yeah, now. It seems like Republicans have a, a problem right now. Uh, the party is a little bit in disarray. They're right now fighting this image of that they all supported the Capitol riots and insurrection and, and that everyone who voted for Trump is a racist and everyone who, uh, so, you know, Mitch McConnell didn't speak up against Trump soon enough and he's, he's part of the insurrection, all that stuff. So they got this image problem. But then also from within, there really is division because a, a lot of what I liked about Trump is something I hadn't seen in any politician or any president for a long time. And now, um, uh, again, I'm, I'm with you on all the bad stuff, but, but there's a lot of people in the party who are pretty ardent Trump supporters and see the fight, want, like, like what he brought, and will divide the party 
if uh, you know, I, I think there's a real possible some sort of division moving forward with the party because uh, the Republican tendency, I think, is going to be, hey, let's just make, let's get Trump to go sit on the sidelines as much as we can. Let's pacify him. Let's be done with him. Let's move forward. And I think a lot of people don't want that. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that that potential for uh, a very significant uh, rift is out there. And and historically, what cures intraparty rifts is generally losing enough elections that people say, okay, <laughs> maybe we ought to think about that fusionism after all. Yeah. Um, the reality the reality is, and I do think in my article on the path forward, I put a few names out there. There's probably more. Um, you know, people can have different people they like. People can have others they don't like. But the avatar, if you will, is someone who is still uh, reasonably respected in the quote unquote, I hate the term, but I'm going to use it just for simplicity's sake, okay. the conservative establishment. And yet at the same time, um, not you know repugnant to the MAGA world. It has a personality of being able to fight and be effective. Yeah. Um, and, and yet at the same time, uh, you can color between the lines. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, you know, one of the things you said about uh, wanting a fighter, you liked that, that Trump didn't care. You remember my talk I gave in Nashville about punk rock Hyperianism. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not going to say the word on your show, believe me. But, but Steve Bannon had this line that they used a lot within Breitbart where they said uh, they would email each other, um, honey badger, don't give a blank. Yep. And th- and it was meant to say, we're, we're just going all out. We don't care what we say. We don't care how it's perceived. And then they ended up really just disintegrating around the foolishness of that philosophy. Mm-hmm. Where my argument in punk rock Hyperianism was we need a punk rockness, not a honey badger, don't blah, blah, blah. But we need it rooted in wisdom. And I think this is the problem, is that Trump was willing to brawl with the media, and he's willing to go after the things he doesn't like in, in uh, the establishment or in government or, or the, you know, the press and all that. I get it. But what was the affirmative vision? See, that's the problem, yeah. is that the Republicans are not going to win, and Christians are not going to have any right to proclaim a seat at the table if all we can define ourselves by is what we're against. And I believe this theologically, I believe this theologically in the church, but I believe it civilly in in the public square as well. We have to have a proactive affirmative vision too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What, um, uh, do you think? Are you glad I didn't say honey badger? No, I don't mind. I don't mind. (laughs) This is is a a, um, PG-13 show, I guess. I don't know. Um, Do you think... Uh, President Trump is going to start another political party. <laughs> I don't, but I definitely think he's going to pretend to. I definitely think he'll he'll use it for a bit of leverage for a while. Um, but ultimately, and again, I, I really apologize to the pro-Trump listeners that think I'm trolling right now or think I'm being <laughs> sarcastic because I'm not. That's yeah. not my intent. Yeah. But um, he doesn't have the organizational skills or the um, coalition building ability to go build an actual infrastructure. Mm-hmm. He's he's an incredibly gifted sales and marketing guy. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the best of our generation. <laughs> but he's not a builder. He's not an organization builder. Uh-huh. And a political party, um, other than just being a kind of fringe thing that lasts for a couple minutes, mm-hmm. um, to actually build a party, you have to have fundraising. You have to have infrastructure. There, there's a, a, a whole, you know, because of 50 states, there's an awful lot of red tape to it. Um, and I don't see that that uh, is something that fits easily within his orbit or within the orbit of people 
that he surrounds himself with. Uh, last question here, and I'll, I'll let you go. But um, uh, do you what what's going to keep us from going back to you know Republican 1.0 or whatever? You know, I I am I, I do not I've I've not liked uh, I I would say Bush was one of the worst presidents we've ever had in the history of our country. Um, uh, I have really been just um, I guess frustrated with how the Republicans' uh, lack of uh, courage has been over, and I, I experienced this here in Idaho locally and, and at the state level. Uh, I've been on the inside track of a number of things here in Idaho, and it's just like, where's, where's, where's the courage? So how, what's going to keep us from wanting to go back to some sort of status quo republicanism that has been losing cultural ground after cultural ground for decades? Well, republicanism and cultural ground are two totally different categories. Um, they're distinct in every sense of the sure. word. The political mm-hmm. stems out of the cultural. And so, um, you, you know, I get what you're saying. It is true that I, I mostly disagree with you, um, but I really am very sympathetic to what you mean by it and where you're headed. Um, I don't believe that it's tough to uh, pretend we can't do math. If we don't have the votes, it's not tough to say, oh, why didn't we get the votes? You have to have the votes. And that's what politics is. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think we need more savvy um, and more suit and tie Republicans to get some of that stuff done. Um, and, and I have a lot of criticisms of President Bush, but courage wouldn't be one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, that what we have to do to avoid what you're calling a status quo Republicanism is have a courageous and high conviction stance against the things we don't believe in. Um, we, we, what everyone bashed Bush for was the spending, the Medicare Part D yep. and No Child Left Behind yep. and huge growth of the welfare state. Yep. Well, Donald Trump did eight times more growth yep. mm-hmm. than, than Bush did, and Republicans didn't say a peep, yep. mm-hmm. didn't say a word. That well, I'll, I'll, I'll criticize Trump on that too. <laughs> I just again, but, but, this goes back to Bush. Bush has it as a footnote. It, it should be up front and said. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. Bush had again. He had the House and the Senate when he got elected. He didn't do anything for the pro-life movement. He he didn't. I mean, they they could have shut down the pro-life industry with the House and Senate under Bush. Could have done it. Didn't do it. How, well, again, I I don't know how they could have shut down. I think you mean the pro-choice industry. Yeah, but maybe you mean me. by defunding Planned Parenthood? That's well, or in 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 making it illegal to abort. You know, overturning Roe v. Wade. Roe v. Wade is a Supreme Court decision. It wasn't a law. And, and yeah, but no the House did, and the Senate don't do that. The the Supreme Court would have to overturn Roe v. Wade. No, no, they could put they could put legal lawful legislation forward, making it a criminal act on a federal level to kill a baby in a, in his mother's womb. Yeah. Would you support that? Yes. The, the yeah. federal the federal criminalization of abortion. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. I I I think federally there's certain plays that that they could have run under Bush that they just didn't do. They promised it. They promised you know every every uh, Republican candidate that comes to me that's pro life says oh yeah I want to end abortion. Well we we well, have the opportunity. I don't think most Republican candidates, including myself, would ever commit to federal legislation against something that the Constitution doesn't allow the federal government to have legislation against uh, as an enumerated uh, power. The, the states, I think there is a pretty legitimate... It guarantees the right to this life This would be sort of the Rand Paul argument on it that, that a lot of Republicans could consider themselves very pro-life and still believe that it is a, a murder is 
uh, uh, state crime. But look, I, I agree with you that there were incredible deficiencies at the top in in um, the, a lot of the past Republican administrations, and I don't want that either. Yeah. Um, I, I, I guess what I would say is that I don't want to have to ever again think of it as we either have to take this uh, uh, really bad option here or this really bad option. Mm -hmm. we, we may sometimes be stuck in a dilemma of having only two uh, options and, and both of them being bad. Right. But when we discuss it proactively and affirmatively, I think we should be talking about the art of the possible. Mm -hmm. and, and it is possible to have a principled candidate who is an effective um, yeah. leader. Yeah. And that's what I hope we'll come back to. But I don't think that the leader drives it. I think it's a positive feedback loop that comes when we have the right foundation in place and then put the right leadership on top of that. Mm -hmm. And we have a lot of work to do foundationally. Uh, I, I know I've held you way past your time. Give me, give me a, just a couple people in mind that you, that you have in mind that kind of are fitting the category you're talking about of, hey, this is, this is a good Republican candidate. Yeah, um, I'm a really, and again, my criteria in this is that I think they're movement conservatives. They can walk and chew gum. They have shown an ability to get some things done effectively. They, uh, from what I know at this time, seem to have the uh, requisite amount of personal character that I think is important. And then politically mm -hmm. have not yet alienated the MAGA crowd or um, the, the kind of more traditional uh, movement conservatives. Mm -hmm. And I would put uh, Dan Crenshaw, congressman from Texas, on that list. Okay. Um, but again, he's, his downside would be very limited resume so far politically. Yep. Uh -huh. um, Senator Tim Scott in South Carolina, yep. I, I would get uh, extremely excited about him, an incredibly competent, uh, principled African-American uh, man who's been in the uh, U.S. Senate now mm -hmm. and held statewide office in South Carolina long enough to be really potent. Um, I, I want to learn more about her, but I've really liked through COVID some of what I've seen of Governor Nome in South Dakota. Yep, yep. Um, I think that Ron DeSantis is uh, uh, a question in Florida. I think that he, on one hand, has significant um, ideological understanding of conservative philosophy. He's a National Review guy and yet um, has been very popular with MAGA and played uh -huh. well to the Trump crowd, yep. and I think uh, done very well with COVID in the state of right. Florida. He did shut, he then, did shut uh, Florida down for a little bit. Um, well, he, he did. But, uh, he was very aggressive in reopening. Every yeah. state shut down. Yeah. I mean, there, there, was no, there was no you know area that's exempt there, but he was Dakota. extremely aggressive in reopening and in, in managing enforcement. Yeah. Um, I think that Nikki Haley is a real political talent, uh, uh, someone I've gotten to know over the years. Mm -hmm. um, she came out of the Trump administration unscathed, uh, governor in South Carolina, did a very good job there, um, has an, ha I think has a little bit of um, bridges that she's maintained in both camps, so to speak. Right. So uh, those are some of the names I'd put out there so far. Interesting. Okay. Well, we got uh, any, any, any last thoughts? We got an interesting at least two years ahead of us and, of course, a four-year Biden administration. Yeah, my, I, my thoughts are that, that to the extent that there are people that are upset, you know, of my criticism of Trump, um, I really do get it. And to the extent that a lot of people felt that the option with Biden, the option with Hillary, um, I, I, there's just simply no question as to why people felt that way. And the world we're in right now 
um, the cancel culture, the wokeism, um, the, the progressivism, the dangers of creeping socialism, most of which are tremendous cultural threats, but they manifest themselves sometimes politically. And why we wanted to feel that Donald Trump was an antidote to those things, and why in a lot of ways he was an antidote to those things, mm -hmm. is no mystery to me. I very much get it. But I really believe the points I make in the article are legitimate as to why it ended the way it did. And I think on a go-forward basis, we need guys like you and I having conversations like this. Yeah. We need a wider tent because wider tent does not mean we sacrifice principles. Right. It just means that we actually are serious about being effective. Right. And when people want the tent to be as small as possible, I don't take them seriously. I think it means they don't really care about what they're saying. Yeah. You and I want to affect big cultural change. It needs a bigger tent, but we can maintain principle within it. Right. A Amen. And I, I guess I have a little more distrust. Probably, probably the, the, I don't really, when I read your article, I didn't really disagree with anything I think foundational. Um, but I, I, I keep, I keep having, um, I keep experiencing like I, I have just this, a foundational distrust or a, uh, I think my generation probably distrusts politicians more than any other generation in the past in a long time. Um, now, you know, there might've been like the, 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 some of, some of the seventies, uh, distrust there, but, um, and so that's, uh, maybe help me out here. Like, I just, I just think, Oh wow. If, if we get the same Republicans elected and back in the house and we get the majority and all that stuff, I, I, I don't think we'll make any significant pushback pro progress unless we really have a Republican in a Republican, uh, um, House and Republican Senate who really do understand that we need to fight and not make peace in in the, in, you know, uh, in in uh, I mean, I, I just don't think these are really times of negotiating much with Democrats on this based off, especially based off the f past four year, four years of the uh, uh, how they handled the Trump administration. Um, so I guess I guess ultimately I'm just trying to describe I have a distrust for uh, Republicans actually doing good if they aren't showing a a initiative to fight if that makes sense yeah and i don't i don't disagree gabe i i, I get it i really do i just i also really believe that we have to understand the reality of the country um if we have 63 republican senators then you're not gonna have anything to worry about because at that point it means the country has so bought in to many of the political principles you and i believe in that those Republicans are going to have free reign and they're going to be so afraid of getting primaried, they're going to they're going to vote like they were Bill Buckley. OK, <laughs> but, but um, when you have a 50, 51, 52 Senate, uh -huh. a you don't have that option to just fight and get everything done. Yeah. There is um, a political dynamism that is complicated. Right. And I hate to say it, but B, this is what our founders intended. They did, they did not intend for it to be that easy yeah. to do government. Right. It's hard, and I am all for us fighting back, and there is no question in my mind that they're fighting against us. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I think that the enemy is not um, Republicans who simply lack the math to get things done. The enemy is a people that are wanting government to be a bigger solution to their problems. Right. We need bottom-up transformation before we can worry about uh, some of these political aspirations. That's amen, man. Hey, thanks for spending more time than uh, I, I asked for. <laughs> I, I enjoy talking with you, my friend. Yep. Have a good one. All right, bud.
Oh, hell, everybody uh, who's hanging on, I'm going to stick around for a little bit and uh, would love to kind of answer any questions in chat, uh, kind of give you some final thoughts here of what I thought of my discussion with Bonson here. Uh, so go ahead and uh, put some questions in the chat, um, and I'll start looking through through the chat here. Um, uh, w- one thing I think you guys um, need, to, need to maybe give David a little room on here is – is he is um, involved in a, a number of of political realms that that we aren't involved in. That and so he knows a lot of background information that are I think factoring in to how he is analyzing the situation. I hundred percent agree with him that we need bottom up transformation. The reason why we get elected leaders or the leaders that we get are because uh, we elected them. The people elected them. We're if we're getting messed up leaders, it's because we're messed up. And so, uh, it, it, we, we, is there, okay. It, um, so we are, uh, we really need to understand that where the fight, where the real fight at, where is, it's on the ground, it's raising kids, it's being faithful, it's going to church, it's discipling your communities. And once you, uh, the, 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 the problem, one of our problems right now, I should have brought this up with David. One of the reasons why our country is so polarized and politics is so uh, problematic is because uh, everyone thinks the game, the most important game, is being played at the federal level. The founders did not, uh, and at no point did the founders want all the political frustration to boil up at the federal level. The, the founders didn't want all the political power to be, uh, to be centered at the federal level. That's what's causing a lot of our political fights and frustrations and, and uh, um, um, fights is, is that we have, we think the game, it happens in DC. We focus all our energy, all our time on what happens in federal politics. And at the same time, we've given so much power to the federal pol- politicians, federal, so much power to the federal government that that's why there's so much frustration that's boiling over right now. If we would, as, as husbands and, and, and wives and, and children, if we would, reassume the responsibility of what it means to be a community in our local level and, and kind of begin to take away all that power that's focusing and in, 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 um, centering at the, at the federal politics, that's how we begin to take back what's going on in our country. And I, and I, I, so I'm, I'm with David on that. The, the other thing is, is the re, uh, you know, I didn't finish this point earlier, but the reason why we get the leaders that we get is is because we elected them, and it and it should reflect on us and who we are as a people. So um, when you you know some people might have a problem with Trump, some people might be for Trump or against Trump, but what we really need to do is reflect on who we are as a people in our state in our communities before we start maybe criticizing uh, Dave Dave on kind of his analysis and what's going on. Um, let me see here. Uh, any arguments in favor of Trump? Oh, so um, Gully Herm. I, I'm probably pronouncing your name wrong. Uh, Gouli Herm, um, uh, if, if you came in and tuned in late, uh, 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 Dave spent the first half of the show talking about what he thought Trump did well. And so you probably came in where we were talking about we're criticizing Trump and everything, which we need to do. Like as Christians, we need to be able to analyze our, ourselves, analyze our party, analyze our, our president fairly, both good and bad. Uh, what we hear with... Uh, David Bonson is Republican worship. Uh, you know, Tad, I don't, I don't, I, I, I don't think that's a fair assessment of what what David's doing at all. And I would, I'd really encourage 
you guys to go to go to nationalreview.com uh and the article that i uh, this this interview was based off of at nationalreview.com is uh, titled i just said at the very beginning of the segment a final assessment of the trump presidency and the path forward and so uh he i think he does a pretty good job you know you could see in the interview that there's still some things i'm working out still some i think disagreement i might have with him on some of this um, I do think overall, I think there's a, diff, a, a very difference between um, kind of uh, he's not much he's not much older than me, but 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 between his kind of age group and my age group on how we um, trust politicians. Like I, I fundamentally just have a distrust of politicians that I think, and I think Dave tends to maybe have a little more of a trust for uh, the Republican Party in the political system and, and politicians. I, I I just have a distrust, and I think that. I, I believe that's something that is healthy and something given the nature and current context of our political system is we should have a uh, healthy distrust of our politicians. I mean, they've, you know, passed, racked up the debt. They've passed stimulus bills. Our state has been, has shut down businesses. What world do we live in where the governor of Idaho thinks he has the constitutional authority to shut down businesses? What world, you know, who, who can imagine that? Well, it's happened. And it's happened, and we should. Um, be, I would. I would like to see everyone that shut down their state get thrown out of office. I. I do. I think Governor Abbott in Texas should step down. I think Ron DeSantis. Ron DeSantis. He originally shut his state down. I do think he did a lot better. Dave pointed out that he opened up his state as uh, faster and um, and hasn't gone to, back to any sort of lockdown like my state of Idaho has. Uh, so I might have a little more wiggle room for for Ron, but it's but even he voted to shut down uh, Florida. So uh, I think a fundamental distrust in, uh, is is healthy given the current context. Our our politicians are not trustworthy, but the reason why they are not trustworthy is because we have a pe- we as a people have not been trustworthy. We can't forget that connection because what happens is is some of you guys in the, in the chat or you know and some of the uh, some of our listeners are kind of want to push back and say, well, what Trump was a good president or, or why are you criticizing Trump or, or, you know, uh, the problem is if we don't have a healthy assessment of who we are as a people and the kind of fruit we're producing in our political leaders, then, then we, we aren't seeing things accurately. And that's something I think we need to deal with as, as, as a people and what's going on. So, uh, let me see if there's any more questions in the chat here. Yeah, yeah, Yukon. Yukon beard. I like that, man. I bet you got some good beard oil. Uh, judgment starts with the church. Um, the church is to blame until the church is turned back to God's law and want to see true justice. The country will continue to spiral downwards, and hands down, 100%. Uh, and, and I think uh, what David is trying to do is I think he's trying to give uh, a, just a, a analysis of the current context of the situation and how we should be, um, you know, kind of interacting on this ball field and this quarter and this moment in time. And, and he's, he's trying to figure out, he's a Christian. He believes Jesus is king of kings, Lord of lords. He believes uh, in the kingdom of God. And he even mentioned it. It's like a mustard seed, right? Uh, so he has a post-mill vision of this world. And, and we need to be wise Christians in the current context with the cards we're dealt, dealt with and how to pick and choose the politicians we put forward and, and hopefully gain momentum to victory. So um, I think 
part of what David is doing is he's saying, hey, we're in this moment. We're in this time. Here's the cards that we have on the table. And, and so you've got to make a decision based off these cards. You can't pretend that there's another card that you can slip into the, to the, uh, on, onto the table. You can't do that. You can't pretend that. You have to make the decision based off these cards that are dealt right here before you now. And so I think that's where a lot of David's analysis is coming from. And, and so sometimes I think um, people might be pushing back but, uh, on David, but I, I don't think they're really um, giving him a fair assessment because of, of the context of his analysis. So it sounds like he wants Mitt Romney 2.0. Is that fair? You know, James... That would have been a good question to ask. I should have I should have asked David David that question. Um, I I did push back and ask him, you know, that how do we avoid getting you know this re- rinse and repeat Republican Party? I don't want the old Republican Party. I don't want the old Republican Party that that capitulates at every step of the way. I don't want the old Republican Party that has the House and the Senate and George Bush as the executive branch, and all they can pass is no child left behind. You know, all they can pass is like, it's like, I want a Republican party who has the house and who has the Senate and who has the executive branch and gets rid of child sacrifice in our country. Right. I want the kind of political party who has a backbone when they get into office, as opposed to when they get in the office, what happens is, is everyone's gets fat and, and sweet with each other. And, and then they can only pass no child left behind. And, uh, you know, maybe a couple economic, uh, uh, packages that kind of get the base excited. That's it. You know, but what we have with the Democratic parties, they know what they're doing when they get in office. When they get into office, well, they get Obergefell. When they get into office, they get Obamacare. When they get into office, I mean, all the uh, packages that Obama passed in his first two years in office uh, was crazy. And yet when the Republicans have that same opportunity, they, they don't do it. They don't do it. So, James, that's a, that's a fair question. Um, Abbott has been... Bought by the pharmaceutical industry. Look at his health advisor. He's also a coward. Yeah, you know, RM, I, I wouldn't be surprised at what levers or influence are affecting uh, Governor Abbott in, in the state of Texas. I mean, one of the things we've talked a lot about on the show is that we want to be the kind of Christians who don't have any levers on us. So we can freely lead, we can freely make decisions, and we can freely sacrifice for the good of our family and the good of our country. Um, if Abbott has a pharmaceutical lever over here, well, that's going to that's gonna affect his decision-making process. If, you know, President Trump has a sexual escapade in the closet over here and that he doesn't want to get to come out publicly, well, that's going to affect how he governs. And so we as Christians, this is why we talk about confessing our sins constantly on the show. This is why we talk about being faithful with your wife, faithful with your children, and, and, and raising your kids in such a way where they're truly, genuinely free. So when they grow up, they know what levers are, and they don't want to have anything to do with these kind of partnerships, these kind of uh, relationships, and these kind of levers. So with that said, um, I'll do, let's say, one more comment here. Tad says, GOP is half the swamp. Liberty needs a party, and it's not going to be the GOP. You know, Tad, um, it would be interesting if, uh, if Trump started his own party. Um, I don't, I don't know what calculations I would make yet in all that. Would I join the Trump train or the, you know, the Patriot party, whatever Trump party started, or would I stick with the Republican party? Um, uh, would there be an opportunity, opportunity, where where would the opportunities be at? You know, what would the principles be for these parties? I mean, it, it would really, 
I think take some wisdom to kind of sort through all that. If if a, if a, a third party popped up that really had potential to split both the Democrats and the Republican Party, that's an interesting scenario. I, our nation is geared towards a, it's always going to be at some level a two party system. That's just how our republic was set up uh, and the kind of structure that it encourages. Um, at times you do have three parties: the Whig Party, Republican Party, Democratic Party. So at times you have had uh, three parties, but usually. Uh, eventually it gets back to a two-party system, and so that's just the way it is. But there you go. Well, thank you guys for tuning in. Uh, make sure you guys uh, go to fightlaughfeast.com to, to join the club, to subscribe to our magazine, and also we're going to do a rally in South Dakota April 29th through uh, May 1st. Love God, sing psalms, defy tyrants. Hope to see you guys there in South Dakota. Thanks for tuning in. I'll see you next week on Water Boys Show for Thursday. We haven't quite figured out the branding. It's coming, though, uh, but it's good to be with you guys.